I'm Ali. And I'm Penny. And you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. So this week, uh, we're going to discuss uh, the topic of perfectionism. And I feel like this is probably going to be a pretty popular topic for many writers. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I thought perhaps we'd start by defining what we see perfectionism as. Um, I see it as um, as striving for flawlessness, um, but also accompanied by um, deep self-criticism or a real kind of fear of criticism from others. What What about you? Does that sound Does that sound right to you? Um, yeah, for me, the way my perfectionism manifests is that I want everything to be perfect, basically. Um, I want everything that goes down on the page to be right and to be right first time. Um, I'm not worried about criticism from other people, bizarrely. I think that's a bit unusual, I'm not sure. Um, I don't mind criticism at all. I actually like criticism. I really like it and I've always liked it. Um, I struggle when people say nice things. <laughs> Bizarrely, I'm, I'm not very good with nice stuff, but um, yeah, so I'm fine with criticism from other people, but I'm very critical of my own work and I expect a lot from my own work um, and maybe before it's ready to deliver that as well. So how does that hold you back or cause you issues when you're writing? Um, I don't think it does now uh, because I've learned how to overcome it. But in the early days, it held me back because I never wanted to share my work. Mm. I didn't want anybody to see it, not because I was worried that they would criticize it, but because I was so critical of it that I didn't want to let people look at it. And I didn't want to let people read it because it didn't match work that I read in books it wasn't the same as book work Um, that's interesting so you were judging yourself on a par with um with with who you decide was worthy yeah I was judging myself on a par with who I was reading Mm. um which is a terrible thing (laughs) to do I mean, you could look at it either way. You could be like, it's really harsh or that's really egotistical. But um, whichever way you want to read that, it, <laughs> it, it was not a good way to view your own work when you're at the beginning of trying to make a career from it. Um, yeah. So how about your perfectionism? I think it shows up in a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, the thing is that's really interesting is I actually wrote a whole chapter on perfectionism in my book but around um, being a parent carer. Um, and, and the thing that was interesting about exploring all of that was that um, I really realized at some point that um, I think I used to think perfectionism was something you either are or you're not. What I realized yeah. um, is that actually perfectionism can show up in different areas of your life and not in others. There's lots of areas of my life I'm not a perfectionist at all whatsoever. And then there are a few areas that um, that I am and for me it's the really high stakes area so as as a parent because my children's lives <laughs> that feels yeah. high stakes to me so I think I can really be really hard on myself when it comes to the kids and in writing it's just in a few specific areas um, 
when I was writing the book, the thing that like kept me up at night, the thing that could have almost stopped me from doing it and very nearly did a few times <laughs> stop me from doing it was my fear about writing about disability as a non-disabled person, mm. which was necessary in the topics I wanted to talk about. Um, and um, so I, that's how it showed up for me there. And I put a few things in place which we can talk about in a bit that helped me with that. But the other area is, um, is my, my, so it's partly self-criticism, definitely partly self-criticism and holding myself to quite a high standard, but it is also a fear of the judgment of others, not because I want people to like me, but because I had deep fear of doing harm, mm. which with the topics I was talking about in that book, um, it was a possibility that I could do harm if I didn't do it right. So um, it was really, really important to me. That felt like super high stakes that I could say something that would, could make the life of a disabled person worse because I, you know, I say something that's inappropriate or wrong or, you know, ignorant or whatever. So um, that for me was where the perfectionism was really showing up. But, um, but I don't think that that was necessarily a terrible thing because yeah. this was really high stakes and it was really important for me to get it right. Um, but it just had to be managed and that uh -huh. kind of, so that it didn't stop me from writing it. Um, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, um, I think where perfectionism can get really, um, I guess, toxic in a way or really, really challenging is if it literally stops you from producing any work, that's where it gets really damaging. And I think that's how it does show up for some people. I think it shows up for some people as, massive procrastination um and never being able to show work to anyone um and and um and then you know that's that's a problem obviously <laughs> that is a massive yeah. problem I think yeah it's a completely a very big problem if it holds you back either from creating work or from um showing work to other people I mean I I have perfectionist tendencies I think in in most areas of my life. I'm not perfect, but I would like everything to be, obviously. It just kind of shows up. I love cooking, um, but every meal that I make, I sit down and I go, oh, but I should have put this in and I should have put that in. And I'm always making notes about what I should have put into the dinner mm. or what I should have done to it. So I think in many ways, I am always editing in it in quite an odd way um and I think the way that that shows up on the page is I'm, I kind of edit as I write as well so I'm I'm editing as I go I'm going is is this word the right word is this the right way to show the scene is this right um an obsession with getting it right I remember reading um Zadie Smith uh and this is to paraphrase so I'm not going to say it completely right but I remember her saying that at times she's preferred to write non-fiction because it's easier to get right because you're working with facts mm -hmm. and you're working with real things and I think this is maybe why I'm attracted to non-fiction because the idea of making something up I find quite crippling because oh my goodness there's there's not a constraint there's so much freedom there there's so much yes am I making this up right? And obviously that's where the technical skills of plotting um, and 
developing character and making sure that you are following an arc and, and working within this framework actually means that you can to some degree being doing something right or not doing something right but yeah my perfectionism kind of manifests as a um, obsession with getting it right and doing it right and it can be very hard when you're working particularly on an early draft to know if you're doing anything right at all because there is just you and that's when you have to overcome the perfectionism and give something over to somebody else um I hadn't let anybody see my work apart from a tutor of an evening course that I did until I met my husband and I hadn't known him for that long when I showed him a short story thing I'd written and he said I think that's really good it's great it's really good um, and he advised that I sent it to a friend of his who was a lecturer in creative writing in Glasgow and I sent it away to his friend expecting that he would tell me exactly why it was a bit crap and he didn't he said it was really good he said it was as good as what his students were producing and just even that little bit of feedback made me think oh maybe I could let other people see it mm. so I think it is important when you feel confident enough you don't need to feel that confident but I do think you need to feel confident enough to be able to think, well, someone might not like it, but also someone might. And I think deep within you, you know when something's at the stage of it being viewable and readable. Um, and that really helped me think, well, maybe, maybe I am holding myself to a higher standard than other people will hold me to. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um I think that's true. I think in some ways we need to almost expose ourselves mm -hmm. a bit and bit by bit in order to build up um, that, I guess, resilience as well to having um, our work seen by other people. And it's interesting when we decided we were going to talk about perfectionism today, I thought, well, we must talk about failure at the same time, because mm -hmm. I think the two things are very heavily linked. I think perfectionism is a fear of failure and and I think we need to practice at a bit of failure in order to um, to be able to move on with our work. Like we need to get it not right in order to be able to get it right sometimes. And even, and I don't even mean that wrong. I just mean like, you need to be willing to be edited as a writer. <laughs> you need to be willing oh, to have someone say, like question why you've chosen a terms of phrase or why you've made your argument that way or why, you know, um, yeah, you need, you need to be, um, willing to have someone question your work in that way um, and that is exposing it's hard it's really it can be really challenging and I think it takes practice it does it it does take a lot of practice I think it also takes knowing what different stages of your work are for mm -hmm. so for instance um, the first draft is for something different than the finished draft it's very often for working out what you're doing mm. um for working out if what you think you've planned if you think that that's going to work and the first draft is a way of thinking things through and of yes. getting through thinking that page yeah. yeah and I think that to realize that you know I wrote the first draft of my memoir and I never looked at it again I wrote you it. Rewrote this, you rewrote the second draft completely, right? Yes, yeah. I wrote it. Yeah, I had 
a very rough structure and I'd never written like that before. I'd always had everything very, very micromanaged, completely microplanned. And when it came to writing the memoir, I really didn't have a clue how to structure it and how to lay it out. And it didn't matter how many times I planned, how many huge big sheets of wallpaper I had and Sharpies and everything, all the things that I'd used before, it just wasn't working. Mm. So I sat down and I had the title in my head and I had this rough idea that I was going to split it into three parts for different parts of my life and that was about all I had Mm. and I sat down and I wrote it very very quickly and I didn't even read it again from that I could remember the points the dots that I had to join and I'm sure it was awful I'm sure it was really really nasty that's probably why I didn't read it again but if I hadn't done it I wouldn't be working on what I'm working on now because I wouldn't have ever got there. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's I think it's allowing yourself to put things on the page that might not work in order to get to the place that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it sounds easy to say, but it's not always easy. I feel like it is something that really stops people um, because it's exposing. It's exposing to criticism from the outside but it's also um if you do the work um it opens yourself up to not being good at it and being confronted by it not being as good as you want it to be but you need that confrontation you need to Mm. see that it's not what you want it to be to ever get it to be what you want it to be yeah um and it is horribly exposing but writing is exposing yeah you know good writing exposes some part of you whether you want to or not you've got to be willing I think to to really be present on the page um and that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to write about yourself but there are parts of you in your work because it is your work oh absolutely and interestingly like I feel like the fiction thing I'm working on at the moment is scarier than the non-fiction stuff which had very personal memoir aspects to it. Um, but I still think the fiction thing feels scarier to me. Like yeah. in a kind of personal level, it feels scarier. Um, and I don't know why. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, yeah, but it does well, you're feel scarier. Com- you're completely out of your comfort zone. You're, you're doing something new and it's really scary to push yourself into new areas and new territories as well. Because you know- I'm not even sure if it's just fiction. the newness. I'm not even sure if it's just that I think it's the fiction thing I'm not sure why but maybe it's what it is maybe it's that working in facts thing is um more controllable maybe that's Mm -hmm. what it is maybe that's why I find the whole fiction thing a bit scary I mean exciting don't get me wrong really exciting but also (laughs) terrifying um and interestingly I have had a break from working on it um for lots of different reasons but um we talked about this personally you and I about how you know part of it is I think actually um something was going to happen in the book that now I don't want to happen because mm-hmm. I love my character too much <laughs> and I'm going to take the book in a different direction I think um but but also um part of it is it is very exposing writing it and um and with all this other stuff going on in my life at the moment it has felt easier to just put it to the side a little bit I think what you need to remember as well with early drafts you know like I said with my first draft I didn't even read it again yes no one's going to see those early drafts oh, and what you. really well exactly but you don't <laughs> have okay. to look I at them for you. you can just look at them <laughs> like 
squeeze <laughs> look at them through um through your fingers like you're yeah, watching a true. horror film yeah. um but I think um once I started my MA and we were producing a lot of work very quickly so that lecturers could see it and give us feedback um I realized also once we learned more about the industry was that what I was reading in a book I wasn't reading a first draft no. in a book you know when I was reading Raymond Carver and John Didion and in fact actually Raymond Carver is a brilliant example because I love his work and but what I was seeing on the page was an interplay of him being edited by Gordon Lish it mm. was heavily mm. edited um and that's the thing is everything that you see bound in a book has had a team of people working on it absolutely absolutely I think I think as well editors do play a massive role in the shaping of a book and it should not be underestimated and we should never be comparing ourselves if we are unpublished and have don't even have an editor to work with um that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to published work particularly and I think that's the thing isn't it like comparison is one of the ways in which we can get stuck in perfectionism and even Uh just recognizing that I think can be incredibly helpful like recognizing first of all just recognizing when you've got perfectionism showing up that's stopping you from working Uh or stopping you from moving forward in your work um with the book one of the things I did with my deep worries I mean like wake up in the night in an anxious sweat worrying about getting something wrong in this book that would be damaging um instead of not writing it (laughs) I went ahead and wrote it but what I did was I put a few checks and balances in place so knowing that my both my agent and my editor um are not disabled I knew that I had to have um a disabled person read it so Uh I hired a a disability um consultant who um was also who was autistic specifically so that um, he basically did a sensitivity read for me and also consulted specifically on the chapter about disability um, because he teaches about disability, understanding about Mm -hmm. disability. And, uh, and it was like the best money I ever spent. It was Uh. just, it just, it put in place the checks that I needed to know that I was doing everything I could to do things right by my end and to check Um, all of the things that could potentially be criticised to make sure that anything I wrote was in line with my values and was um, also in served the purpose that I wanted it to serve in the book, which was to support the disabled community um, and to definitely not to cause any problems. So that was a really big thing. Um, and then the other thing was just also putting in place a number of deadlines. Um, and I think we can do that for ourselves personally. Um, whether either using an accountability partner or something, if you can, if that's what's helpful to you, or if you know you can stick to your own deadlines that you're setting for yourself, because I think um, that can can really help with um, the things that are stalling us, that we keep putting it off, we keep putting it off, because if we don't have some specific dates to work for, sometimes those worries, and we are, I think, always going to have some worries with about what we're writing. I think it probably wouldn't be worth writing if we weren't slightly worried about it. Mm. Um, that just meeting our deadlines and knowing I can come back to this. I can, yeah. I've got to meet this deadline. I've got to get these pages done before X time. And then I can keep coming back to it. I can keep coming back to it. And in fact, actually, my editor said that to me a few times. She kept reminding me how many times we were going to check it. It was going to have a legal read. It was going to have a copywriter. It was going to have final edits. It was going to have all these stages where if I changed my mind about something, 
or if any of my interviewees changed their mind about something, that was the other thing I did. I had all of my interviewees read back. I sent them each one. I sent any part in the book they were mentioned. I sent the paragraphs that they were mentioned in and I had them read through it and check for language and check for everything that we're happy with. And that was another thing <laughs> that stopped me from uh, stopping writing the book. Um, that was very reassuring, but also just um, reminding me how many points on the publishing process I had to change my mind about um, mm -hmm. language or some kind of thing that I'd written about my son if I changed my mind about sort of sharing that information. That made a huge difference. I think reminding ourselves when we're writing that this is not the final version until it's the final version is really, really important. Yeah, that does really help. I think definitely thinking, well, this isn't permanent. You can hit delete, you can change it, you can walk around the scene. There are so many things that you can do. Um, I think I've come to realize that for me, although perfectionism, held me back in the past the way it works now is I think that I produce I don't know if, if my editor would necessarily agree with me but I think what I do is I, I'm really quite careful with my work I don't mm. work necessarily really quickly although I have just finished this draft of the book See, seven months I know I, was, deadline, so, I, I, yeah. I, I um listeners I disagree with that I think Ellie does work very quickly we have definitely we've gone through phases where we've had a whatsapp group where we share how many words we've written in a day just to keep spare us on and there have been days when she has been up around 5,000 yeah I do sometimes <laughs> but when, when I'm writing that quickly it's something that I've been thinking about for a long mm. time I know, and, and I it's a redraft. I know, I know. Uh, it's a bit different. And I think that's what it is. If I feel something isn't working, and I know that I'm fighting with my tendency to want to make it perfect, I give myself a bit more time, which mm. completely contradicts what you just said. But for me, <laughs> sometimes I just need a bit more time because it's sticky and it's sticking for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, like, for instance, the, the final part of my book, which I just today sent away. Um, yeah, I know, but <laughs> this last part has taken ages and it's a 14,000 word section. It's tiny in comparison to the rest of the book, mm. but there's so much that it had to do because I had mm. a lot of things to tie up and a lot of kind of things that I wanted, like you said, you want to make sure you've got everything in. Mm. Um, and yeah, it just, it was really, really sticking for ages. And I tried all these different approaches to it and quite a few of them were quite mad and it really wasn't working. And I left it and went back and finished the middle section of the book and then went back to it. And it kind of fell into place really quickly, which I think comes back to what we said. Um, I think last week's episode is kind of the value of the subconscious work that you're doing when you're doing creative worrying and you're working things out without realizing yeah, you're, you're processing working it all. Yeah. yeah. And I do think if there's something that you feel is ugly or you feel isn't worded properly or jars with you, there's probably a reason for that. It probably isn't right. It probably isn't the standard that you want it to be. Mm. And a really useful thing can be to think, well, how will I get it 
to that standard do I need someone else involved Mm. do I need more time do I need to do more research do I need to do more reading you know there's so much practical ways that you can work out your brain is saying this isn't good enough sometimes for a reason it's not just because you're shit talking yourself yeah oh yeah definitely and I think that's really important it's you know there is a line between self-criticism and just you know healthy criticism of your own work definitely Um, and I think that's so personal and it's almost like we need to this is why I think the noticing is incredibly important when we Mm -hmm. when these things come up in us noticing that we're stopping noticing that we're stuck on something noticing that we're avoiding the work noticing Mm -hmm. because then I think we can get to know ourselves and recognize it in ourselves like Mm. when is this okay now I'm just not working because of this problem like how mm-hmm. am I going to I, I've been stopped in my tracks how am I going to keep moving again um, and maybe that is like you said you left the third part and went back and edited the second part instead for a bit you know I think that's it it's about like recognizing it in ourselves what we need in order to keep working because I think um interestingly though I think I I think a lot of people might be really interested in like well, what happens if you can't even start the work what yeah. if that perfectionism stops you from putting like opening the document or mm-hmm. at all or, or putting pen to paper um and I'd be really interested what do you think about that if that is a problem if it's if it's the leap to start is the problem if um for me there was no if that really was a problem with me in mm. the past um I had a project that I had planned out and I really wanted to do it I was really excited about it um, and I, I didn't do it because I didn't know how to do it right. Mm. I couldn't do it properly. And in retrospect, it was far too ambitious for the stage I was at. But it also just wasn't the right thing to do. Mm. Um, it wasn't the right project. Um, and what I did instead was I wrote this. <laughs> I wrote what <laughs> I'm working on. Um, and... I just didn't have the fear at all with this project. And I think sometimes it could also be, maybe you aren't working on the right thing. Maybe it isn't the yeah, thing that really feels right. Mm. Um, but and maybe other the scale than, is wrong as well. Exactly. Mm. But also maybe if you, maybe if it is to say, say if the problem is that it's too ambitious, then try and get a first draft just think nobody else has to read this I don't need to even read it back just write it and then go over and think well what are the problems are the problems structural are the problems with the tone are the problems with the research are the problems with the plot Um, because actually it might be better than you think or you Mm. tend to find as well that well the second draft might be better exactly or it will get better as you get to the end because you're learning as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think if the thing is that your perfectionism is ever stopping you is trying to break it down as well. Think, well, today I'll write 500 words and I'll make sure that they're really good words or I'll write mm-hmm. 250 words and I'll make sure that that's a good paragraph, giving your permission to write, like giving yourself permission to write um, slowly like paragraph by paragraph and edit as you go can also be a way of doing it you don't Mm. need to get a whole big first draft 
out if that's not what works and I think that's the thing as well is learning what works for you um, and the only way you can learn that is by getting the words on the page and, and mm. seeing what comes out some people really do need to work slowly and have the first draft a really good standard and there's that's just not how it works Mm. yeah for me in the past if it's ever been a case of not being able to get started I've just gone smaller and that's something Mm -hmm. that's worked quite well for me so when I was nervous about starting writing again after having quite a few years break when the kids were small um, and I was thinking about sharing stuff the first time which I hadn't done for a very 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 long time I started so small I started like I started a blog where I didn't put my name on it. Mm. So I was publishing something in the public realm and sharing it with a few people, but I didn't even put my name on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, when that felt better, then I started sharing it with my name on it. And then I started pitching to magazines and then I just got slightly bigger and, um, and bigger, but I had to give myself the steps in order to know, I think to make it, I guess, manageable so that I mm-hmm. didn't overwhelm myself. Um, but something else that, um, that I have used in lots of areas of my life, um, that I think is, can be really, really helpful for perfectionism in whatever areas, but I think it can be really useful for writers is, um, is a practice of mindful self-compassion. Um, and it's sounds really like, I don't know, it sounds like it might be a bit much, but actually it's so simple (laughs) and, and it's can just happen in a few moments. Um, And, and all it is, is first of all, bringing attention to the feelings that you're having. Um, And Uh a lot of the feelings I think around perfectionism um, are shame um, and feeling exposed um, and feeling and judging yourself and feeling like you might be judged by others. And I think just noticing that is, is the first step. And then the second step is to kind of, um, is to recognize that as the common humanity in that, like to recognize that, that um, you're not the only person that has that, that this is a really, really common human feeling that you're having and that you aren't alone. And then the third step is to then be kind to yourself about those feelings and that can be the hardest thing and so the easiest way of doing that often um, because people do a lot of people do have trouble being kind to themselves is to um, imagine you were talking to a friend and they were having this problem yeah and then you can be kind to yourself in the same way that Mm -hmm. you would be kind to a friend who's in that situation and it sounds like okay that sounds all nice and airy-fairy and stuff but it really genuinely self-compassion can have a really big impact it can really quite immediately lessen and sort of um, ease feelings of shame and those feelings can be very paralyzing those feelings can really stop us from working and from moving forward so it really these practice um, it sounds like nothing, but it really, really can help if your perfectionism is so extreme that you're not working at all, that you or that you've done the work and you will absolutely not share it with anyone mm-hmm. because you're too afraid. Then um, I would have a little go and see see whether it helps loosen something and ease it a little bit. Yeah, I use the um, talking to a friend tip and that works really well. Also, I talk back to myself. So if I'm saying something negative about myself, I answer myself uh-huh. from a different part of myself. Um, I'm not sure that makes much sense at all, no, but I used to, um, yeah, 
I used to suffer from really bad anxiety. It's not as half as bad, particularly over the last year. Um, found the last year much less anxiety producing. Interesting. But, yes. In the current, current climate. <laughs> I know. I'm one of the rare few. Um, but yeah, so I basically um, used to wake up in the night and have lots of negative self-talk. And I suddenly thought one night, well, why don't I talk back? to Mm. this voice so I started to talk back and over weeks and then months it just sort of just disappeared the voice that used to wake me up just didn't bother anymore because it knew that it was going to get shouted down yeah Um, I think that's so interesting isn't it because I think this is the thing that's so interesting is that we have this inner critical voice we're so used to it it's around a lot like we kind of you get used to hearing yourself be critical but we do have compassionate voices inside us as well and we just mm-hmm. need to practice using them and it is just simply practicing and remembering it's there that yeah. the, the, the critic is not the only one that lives in our head we do have other things up there yeah. <laughs> um, exactly and I think it's a case of knowing when to listen as well mm. so at times the critical voice is exceptionally useful um yes. the yes. critical voice is not always a negative thing like I was mm-hmm. saying when I cook I'm always thinking oh what could I add to this what could I do what could I take away um and then next time I make it it's better and it's the same when I'm working mm. is like my favorite part of the submissions process last year was getting um the feedback from editors who for different reasons didn't want the book yeah um, and I I've kept all of the feedback and I've used it when I've been working since because I think it's so, so valuable. Mm. I love um, valuable criticism and I think trying to amalgamate that feedback into being part of your inner voice really helps as well because you usually find that when people are giving you feedback, they give you the positive as well as the negative um Mm -hmm. which kind of softens the inner critic because you can think well this piece actually is good or is potentially good and you learn where the weaknesses are um so yeah I think just just realizing when you need to switch the voice on and giving it time there's a really very quite quick and easy way of knowing whether it's a voice in your head you should listen to or one that you shouldn't. And it's something I learned a little while ago. I think it was maybe from possibly Tara Moore, who wrote a book called Playing Big, which is an excellent book, um, is this idea that, you know, when it's um, helpful criticism, it's usually nuanced. Exactly. Um, and yeah. when it's unhelpful, it's quite binary mm-hmm. and all or nothing. And that's a really quick, easy way of knowing whether or not you should listen to that inner criticism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because if your voice, inner voice is sort of screaming in a kind of really binary, it's awful, it's shocking, it's awful, it's horrible, the whole thing's crap, you know, it's a very good chance you maybe shouldn't listen to that particular voice. But if the criticism in your head is going, is much more specific and a bit more nuanced, then that might be actually much more worth paying attention to. And I think that's a really good quick gauge mm. in the moment as to whether or not you should be um, paying attention to what it's saying. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. I think also realizing when your work needs um, other eyes or when it's ready to let go mm. as well, because you can you could write a book forever uh, because a book's never going to be right. So you could edit, you could tinker, you could 
add in different ideas, take things out, you know, you, that process is essentially endless. So you've got to realize um, when it's ready to let go. And you also have to realize that readers don't know what's in your head. I've had mm -hmm. to tell myself this about <laughs> yeah. Christmas. Um, bizarrely, I've had to do this at Christmas time because I have these ideas of, of what Christmas should be like. And I would go on and on and on and buy presents forever. And I just wouldn't stop. Um, so I've had to think, well, you know what? The kids don't know the things that I've been thinking. All mm. they see is what's in front of them. And it's exactly the same with words on a page is other people don't know what you're thinking of adding in and the other bits that you could put in or the bits that you could draw out and there comes a time when you've just got to give it to a reader because you know that that's essentially what your work is there for it's there to be read so you've got to hand it over I think yeah. it's a for me um perfectionism is a control thing it's about mm -hmm. feeling that I'm in control and I can create this world that feels manageable and yeah. right. Um, and sometimes you've just got to let other people in and hand your work over. Um, yeah. But you also, oddly, have to balance it. Maybe that's at later stages. When I first started to write, I would let myself write by telling myself that no one was ever going to read it. Mm, yeah I had to Sometimes think that's well, a necessary stage yeah, yeah you kind of have to do the well no one's going to read this and um and that can help you reveal things that you might have kept mm. to yourself or help you explore different mm. styles different ways of doing things be more vulnerable it. exactly mm. yeah you can and I think that that's also a really helpful way of overcoming it needing to be perfect think well it doesn't matter because no one's gonna read it <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah the letting go is an interesting one I think I've heard writers describe when a book is finished is when the editor just takes it off you and doesn't let you have it back yeah and I think that's I think that's kind of where I got to with mine I think I could have I could have added more I could have changed it I could have yeah I mean I had other people tell me no no we're done now we're done we're good yeah yeah I think um, you get to the stage as well where you just feel right I'm done exhausted. Yeah. Exhausted. you, you get into the stage where you kind of go these things that are bubbling in my head these new things I want the new things I'm done with oh, this the thing. shiny new things it's really yeah. exciting having a shiny new thing I have to say it is yeah. very exciting I'm enjoying it a lot um well I think perhaps we should talk about what we've been reading this week oh yes um please do been having a good week <laughs> I have had a good week too I'm going to save one of them though um uh, for a slightly closer to its publication date um but so I will start with something that is already out which I really gosh it was so good and interesting and I think so many people should read it it's called um white feminism by Koa Beck and it's so interesting some of it was very new to me some of it was not new at all but it was it went into, um, a lot of it was about the history of feminism um, and feminist politics and how we got to the point of white feminists, which he basically describes white feminism as being feminist politics within patriarch, that uphold patriarchal systems. Yes. And, um, and, and, and individual women doing well within the patriarchy. 
Um, <laughs> and I think it so perfectly describes um, so much feminist politics at the moment. And there was some mm -hmm. really fantastic and fascinating stories and incredible research in there, including things like massive brands headed by female CEOs that claim to be very feminist, use a lot of feminist messaging in their, in, um, in their marketing, but have really abhorrent systems that, um, that specifically discriminate against you know, um, pregnant women and, you know, um, and, you know, like all sorts of horrible things like that. But, um, but it's a really, really fantastic book. Um, she's mixed race and queer, and she is really looking at feminism from, um, the, a minority perspective oh. as, um, and, and it's, in a very holistic way. I mean, I would say the only criticism, um, there's a couple of little criticisms. One would be, I don't think she paid much attention to disability, but she does mention it a few times. She doesn't go into it in depth in the same way that she does into gender and sexuality and race. So that was a teeny bit disappointing that it wasn't a bit more in depth because it is such a massive intersection. Um, but um, the other thing which I find sometimes with, and this is brilliant, by the way, and I think everyone should read it. So this is not like a major criticism, but it does. I do tend to find American authors writing about these sorts of things do sometimes um, put a little bit too much um, hope in the idea that if Americans just get access to healthcare and maternity rights, that everything will be a lot better. And I'm like, well, we have those things here in the UK and we still have all of these societal problems and then we still have a massive gender pay gap and we still have those things. So that slight criticism there, but, um, but it's really brilliant and very incredibly, incredibly detailed, amazing research in it. So I would highly recommend. Sounds really good. I, um, I've got lots of, um, I don't want to say issues, but reservations about white feminism um, and the way that it's been commodified and co-opted by capitalism. So I think that, that would be so. I think right up book. my street, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, I The book I'm reading, I stumbled across um, on Chateau and Wendis's Instagram. And as soon as I saw the book, which I'll show you the gorgeous cover, um, but you won't be able to see it because I'm in the dark. Oh, yes, so, yes, yeah. yes. So this book is, uh, yeah, as soon as I saw it, I knew that it had to be mine. And I ordered it immediately. Um, it's called The See-Through House by Shelley Klein. And it is a story of a house. It is a story of an incredible man. It is a story of landscape. It is a story of loss, of inheritance, of just so many things. It is a truly magnificent book. It has just grabbed me. I absolutely love it. So it basically is the story of Bernard Klein, who was a textile and fashion designer. And he lived in the Scottish borders and obviously I grew up in the Scottish mm. borders and spent a lot of time there he had a house built for him by an architect called Peter Womersley who also lived in the Scottish borders and has done a lot of buildings that are there he's was a brilliant um, modernist architect and he designed a house for the clients which was absolutely well not was is still a beautiful house it's made um mainly from glass so that it brings the outside in mm -hmm. and it's I, I love modernist architecture and so it's a gorgeous house but it's the story um it's told by Klein's daughter 
and it's so it brings in so many things it is laid out each chapter is um called one of the rooms in the house and she examines the room in the house but she also goes into the past it's a biography of her father she talks about the industry she talks about his um jewish heritage she talks about just so many things and i'm reading it going how did she do this it's nearly impossible to understand how she wrote it because it flows so beautifully mm. it almost flows like some kind of free indirect thought just coming out her it's but at the same time I know it can't be it's absolutely brilliant it's a lovely book um, and Klein died in 2014 um, and she details her grief as well after his God, death I have to say that sounds so up my street I do oh, love it's a brilliant um, book I think just of so many years of shooting houses I love mm. um, books that feature architecture as almost a character within books I love it I absolutely yeah. love it yeah that's exactly what she's done with this book and she says actually in one part she says my father was the house the house was my father mm. um because Ooh, they became so intertwined and like as an interiors photographer like this house for you would have been a complete dream the furniture was all like designed and built into the house so. oh yeah no I I've uh, shot um Oh, I, I absolutely love modernist architecture as well. And I've shot Jack Pritchard, Pritchard's house, who was um, the, the the man who designed, um, who was the Isocon designer, who did those amazing penguin. Do you know the penguin donkey? Have you heard of those? It's a, it's a, no. it's a side yes, table. Yes, yes, yes. I do know them because they're amazing. Paperbacks. They're amazing. Yes, the guy who designed yes. that, I, I photographed his house. He died many, many years ago. His son lives in it, um, who's also very elderly himself now. Um, and everything is built to go yeah everything amazing, is built everything, like is, modular. Built. everything mm-hmm. is everything is built for the house itself and it's just incredible and oh yes yeah dreamy, and dreamy, I think and what's gorgeous as well is it bring because it's a house that brought the landscape in the book brings the landscape in and it's mm. landscape that I know and I've been really homesick over the winter time so to read a book that's basically home and she yeah. describes areas that I know and then, of course, because he was a textile designer um, and I did textiles in Gala, which is where he mm-hmm. had a mill and he had a studio as well. His studio was absolutely beautiful. And um, you could see the studio from the road. And my grandpa used to drive me past it to have a wee sneaky look as well. Uh-huh. So there's all these kind of, it, it feels like, a, yeah, it's like a homecoming mm-hmm. book. But I would, for people who don't have links to the borders or to the industry it is just it's just a lovely book I think her love for her father really shines through mm. as well I think it was released um last year and I I'd completely missed it so it was a very fortuitous find and yeah it's, it's really it's a very warm book as well it's a really comforting book so yeah thoroughly recommend it oh it sounds so up my street mm. oh well we've had a good reading week excellent <laughs> Yeah, it has been a good week. And of course, it's World Book Day today as well. It is, it yeah. is. And you know what was so funny? Um, my daughter um, is going to be doing World Book Day. I think they're going to do it in two weeks at her school so that all the kids can join uh-huh. in, which is exciting. And I did tell her, she was like, oh, I don't know who I'm going to be. This is usually a big deal in our house. She loves preparing her World Book Day outfit. And I said to her, you know, technically, you could go as yourself this year because 
I wrote about you in my book that came out last year. And she was like, oh my God. I was like, I mean, she's really not really in it that much. Let me tell you that. But she's mentioned. I feel like it's fair. She was like, oh, I could go as myself on World Book Day. But no, she's decided against it. She's um, she's going, we're reading. In fact, actually, we should occasionally talk about what we're reading for our kids. I'm sure people, it's, I, I know I'm always listening out for more recommendations, but we're just oh. reading the second book of Sandy Toxvig's books about an Irish family who leave Ireland during the famine and migrate to America. And they're doing this amazing epic journey across America. Um, and she's going to be that character, Slim Hankin. And it's, they're brilliant books. I think it's the first one's called A Slice of the Moon. Um, oh. I can't remember what the second one's called. They're brilliant. They're so brilliant. Sounds really good. The boys are into all the How to Train Your Dragon books oh. at the moment. And um, I, yeah, I tried to convince Winter that she should go as a penguin. I thought that would be quite funny, but she, <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't up for it. So they will never take our suggestions. No, no, they definitely won't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, very good week for books. Um, and lots of books out today as well, which oh, has it's been a bumper crop today, although uh, it won't be coming out for a couple of weeks, so we'll be a bit behind. But yes, no, an absolute huge slew of books i'm i'm guessing so many fabulous books are coming out because there's been a lot of postponements because of yeah, last I think year so. but i feel like we are just you know languishing in a sea of wonderful books at the moment i feel very spoiled i've got so many orders coming in um and yeah I feel yeah spoiled. i'm exactly the same i think it feels really lovely i think i'm hyper aware as well that as life starts to um take on a different shape I don't want to say go back to normal because it's not going to no. um as it as it becomes whatever it's going to be next that the kind of the luxury of reading um that we've had time to do will start to diminish and I really want to hold on to my reading time not gonna let that slip no and I I do think there might be plenty of people listening who they've had the opposite and they haven't been reading as much so for anyone that that's happened to hopefully with children back at school I'm hoping that maybe some people might get a bit more reading time in if that's been a problem Um, I've actually just been listening to a lot um, rather than reading quite so much like less sitting reading more walking around house doing jobs listening Um, so I'm hoping to get a tiny bit more sitting reading time because that is lovely right wow Well, it's been lovely to chat and I will talk to you next week. See you later. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin. <laughs>